This podcast is produced by students in the University of Pennsylvania's pre-health post-baccalaureate programs. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed belong solely to the podcast creators and our guests, and do not necessarily represent the views of pre-health programs. To find out how the University of Pennsylvania can help prepare you for health professional school, visit upenn.edu slash prehealth. Hello there, listeners. My name is Dean Wirtz, and welcome to Pen Pals, bringing you Philadelphia's stories from a distance. And today we have Dr. John Zimmerman, professor of um, biology and advisor to the Penn Pre-Health Program over at the University of Pennsylvania. But uh, no one can introduce yourself better than you, Dr. Zimmerman, so uh, go ahead. Well, um, actually, technically, I'm a senior lecturer. (laughs) There would be there would be full, there would be professors at various levels who probably wouldn't want me to be called that. <laughs> uh, but I do teach uh, both the introductory biology series here at Penn and um, uh, and also uh, an essentials of genetics course, introductory genetics course uh, for uh, LPS, uh, specifically the pre health program. Uh, although other students are also take those courses. Um, and um, before I worked at LPS, uh, I was in uh, research for a while, uh, most recently uh, at the uh, Center for Circadian uh, and Sleep Biology, uh, so that, uh, which was also on Penn's campus. Uh, and um, that was doing a lot of uh, basic research trying to figure out uh, the molecules behind sleep, uh, which is still an open question. <laughs> Uh, and so that's uh, that was uh, it was very fascinating, but you know things changed, uh, and uh, I started teaching for LPS, uh, and I'm really uh, very much enjoying it. I like teaching a lot. Um, uh, I think if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have been rather surprised at that answer. Uh, but um, you know, it's been uh, a quite uh, quite interesting, and honestly, I think I've learned a lot more biology teaching it than. Uh, than doing research where you're sort of delving down very deeply into a rather narrow area. Uh, but, you know, especially for the intro biology course, you cover a lot of material. Uh, so that's a, a, a lot of, uh, huh, you know, I gotta, I gotta look into that because I have to talk about it and uh, I'd like to have all the little parts down, so. Yeah, and uh, just a few clarifications for the listeners out there. LPS stands for uh, Penn's School of Liberal and Professional Studies. It's a kind of post-baccalaureate program that Penn provides for various different uh, professional school development and things like that. And with doing research at Penn, I assume you were doing research at uh, Perlman Medical School? Yeah, so uh, what was interesting because um, uh, it it was was part of Perlman School of Medicine, uh, but um, they have this really unique organization where it's called a, a division. Uh, and so divisions basically span multiple uh, departments within uh, the School of Medicine and also uh, with um, uh, this, the actual university, uh, because there were people that were in this division that had appointments that were, for example, primarily with the biology department, which is part of the School of Arts and Sciences, uh, and then uh, four or five different uh, departments within the School of Medicine. Uh, and they were all under sort of the umbrella that was the division, the sleep division, which is somewhat, I don't know how unique that is, but I, I thought it was really uh, somewhat unique uh, in my experience anyway, uh, in terms of sort of organizations that had a, 
a wide umbrella that encompassed a, a number of different departments. So. Got it. And when you said that, if you asked yourself 20 years ago that, or if you told yourself from 20 years ago that you were going to be a teacher or senior lecturer, um, what was your idea of what you wanted to do 20 years ago? Uh, I thought I basically would be staying within uh, the field of research. Uh, but um, having started uh, in that field um, and uh, progressing up to a point uh, where it's within a, uh, I'm getting a little technical here, it was within a non-tenure track position. And um, uh, I realized uh, very early on when I actually I got my PhD and actually started doing my postdoc. Uh, and then from the postdoc, uh, started working at the center that uh, the concept of me running my own lab uh, was uh, becoming less and less attractive. <laughs> so uh, that's why I sort of went the non tenure track route, still uh, pursuing research. And that was where I had seen myself. Uh, but ultimately, you know, I. Um, um, well, for various reasons, um, mostly having to do with writing grants, <laughs> I kind of decided, you know, maybe this isn't really, uh, something I want to do the rest of my life. Uh, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but that's, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, the opportunity to, to, uh, teach actually genetics, uh, in 2014. Uh, for uh, uh, for LPS in the pre-health program uh, came about and uh, uh, I love genetics and it was so much it was so much fun uh, and apparently I guess I did an okay job because they asked me to come back <laughs> uh, and, and start full-time uh, in which case I added uh, the duties of being an advisor to also being an instructor uh, and that was really uncharted territory uh, but um, um, oddly enough, um, I actually enjoy talking to people, so that worked out really well. Um, which is, you know, uh, it's always it always just surprises me that I, I do enjoy talking to people, <laughs> given given I'm a fairly introverted individual. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, so you know, it's uh, but it uh, and that was I guess my primary concern when I started is like, I am able to do this advisor, but. Um, uh, it is actually really uh, extremely fulfilling uh, in terms of um, being able to help people uh, sort of achieve their goals or to realize what their goals are uh, in terms of what they want to do um, in the health fields and just in general. Um, and that's, um, you know, and then, and then also the, the fact that uh, so many people in our program uh, the vast majority succeed, um, and that even if I had like a little tiny bit to do with it, uh, it's very satisfying to think, oh, you know, I, I somehow helped our, our next generation of doctors or veterinarians or physical uh, dentists or uh, physician assistants, uh, even if there's a little bit, that, that's, that's a very, um, feels like a very worthwhile thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, going backwards a little bit, if you could explain to our listeners what a postdoc is. It didn't, it didn't always used to be the case, but I would say, uh, and when I say always, I have a tendency to go way back. But at least the last three decades, um, once you've actually completed the requirements um, and your 
a thesis committee says, okay, he's, this person's done, they have a PhD, uh, then the next step, um, you know, if you're very fortunate would be then to figure out, well, where do I go with my PhD? Uh, and, you know, and there's the options of industry, uh, working for the government. Uh, but in many cases, um, there's this intermediate step uh, while you're looking for, or, or to actually pursue academics and, and try to get a tenure track position. But um, especially tenure track, and I think most other places, uh, want you to do this intermediate step, which is to be a postdoctoral fellow. So um, you have your PhD, but you're basically working for, usually the fellowships are for uh, one to two years. Um, and then, you know, depending on uh, the grant situation of the primary investigator, that may be a little longer, but they, they generally aren't supposed to last. Um, you're, you're not supposed to be in this situation for more than two or three years. Uh, and so, uh, it's an opportunity then for you to um, develop your own research plan to, uh, although initially when you're coming in, you're probably uh, advancing the plans of your primary investigator, which is why you try to find somebody who is doing something you're interested in. <laughs> uh, and then uh, from that, you know, you can, uh, you know, branch off a little bit uh, and, then, and, and then take that research that you've done there and use that as sort of the seed uh, so that when you go somewhere and you have your own lab, uh, uh, you can then, uh, and ideally academically, then you go take what you've done as a postdoc, uh, a postdoctoral fellow, and then you get a faculty position and you use that as kind of the, the kernel of where your uh, own research career will go from there. And that's sort of like the, the, the goal behind it. Um, in many cases, uh, I think uh, what happened, and, and actually the National Institute of Health uh, limited how many how many years you could be a postdoc, uh, was that um, you know there were some people who finished a PhD and then were very um, not successful in finding positions because not everyone was retiring, people are staying around longer, uh, and so they'd be a, they'd be in these fellowships for like you know five six years. Uh, and that was not what they were originally intended to be. And they actually changed the rules not that long ago, maybe about four or five years ago, uh, that you're only supposed to do it for X amount of time uh, in an effort to try to get people to like, you know, help themselves and move on. Uh, but yeah, and, um, and so I had done, uh, so I'd gotten my PhD from Temple University. Uh, my uh, uh, primary investigator has since uh, Dr. Uh, Lawrence Yeager moved on. He actually works at NIH now. Um, and, um, uh, and that's when I started the postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Nancy Benini's lab, who uh, is a full professor <laughs> in the biology department at Penn. Uh, and I was her uh, first postdoctoral student. Uh, and so I was there for about two years. And then that's when I switched. After that, I went to the center. Uh, so, uh, and then from the center to uh, LPS. Uh, so I've been in Penn for a relatively long time, uh, but um, uh, but there was a, a break so that they uh, uh, so in between uh, the center and uh, starting at uh, LPS. Quite the track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, and I I feel like you know now I'm actually where I'm supposed to be. 
Uh, I hadn't felt that way for a little bit uh, toward the end of my uh, research career. I was like, no. but you know, that's what happens. You, uh, you go down a particular uh, route and then you sort of have to reassess every now and again. Is this where I really want to be? What do I need to do to change and that kind of thing? And so yeah. here I am today. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, looking at that kind of introspection, um, how do you feel the, where the divergence of how you approach being a senior lecturer versus being an advisor? Because with being a senior lecturer, you're trying to help bring students to this knowledge base and handle goals in the immediate future. Whereas as an advisor, you're looking towards the future in kind of a more gray area. Well, I, I mean, I think um, it, it is really wearing two hats, uh, but um, there, are, uh, there are four of us actually in this position. Uh, so uh, Dr. Basu, uh, Dr. Tong, who just recently started, uh, and Dr. Whitmer. And I think on one level, um, so we have advantages and disadvantages. So, uh, so when it comes into uh, the nuances and the um, uh, like requirements for medical school and in terms of like, you know, thinking, um, you know, what in the past has worked, what, uh, what, what's a good path to take. Uh, I think, you know, we all have uh, certain aspects of that uh, that we bring to the table, but uh, both uh, the director, Jackie McLaughlin, and the senior ad advisor, uh, Daniel Lieber, they've been in that sort of position there, you know, for a long time. And so they, they are extremely knowledgeable about different programs and this and that and the other thing in specific medical schools. Um, but I think the thing we bring as lecturers is we get to see uh, our advisees in this role as a student. Uh, and that actually is really helpful sometimes uh, in terms of sort of guiding people as to where they want to go. Um, because, um, you know, you've sort of seen what they've done. You, you've seen them uh, dealing, you know, tackling uh, problems and how their thought processes work. And so it, it sometimes adds something to, uh, to the advising. It's like, well, you know, based on, you know, things we talked about in class, um, have you considered like this particular pathway? Uh, and, you know, and we've all had um, different experiences outside of um, uh, advising that we can bring in in terms of like you know, research, um, being at different institutions, at different, in different roles. Uh, and so all of those, I think, come into helping people kind of like, where is it, you know, what is it you're trying to do? What, what, um, what is your sort of like long-term uh, plan? And, and, and have you thought about like, you know, five years from now, where do I want to be? What do I want to be doing? Uh, and in some cases, it's like, what do you want to be doing besides practicing? <laughs> and, um, you know, what are the other things uh, that, you know, you're going to, that you're going to want to think about that are going to bring you like satisfaction? Uh, so, um, so I think, uh, I think, you know, wearing the two hats sometimes is helpful. Uh, and it also means that, um, you know, it's, it's, not like the only time you've seen the person is when they're coming in as an advisee. And then a lot of times the, uh, that also then uh, uh, leads to a certain sort of level of uh, comfort almost because they know you in other, in other aspects, so. 
Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think uh, yeah, that was a full, full encompassing explanation there. And I think it's time we get on to the actual topic of our, uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, today we'll be talking about uh, Hox genes, which again, I think would be the best for you to describe and give a definition of what exactly a Hox gene is. Okay, so um, Hox is actually uh, abbreviation. It's not because it's not really an abbreviation per se, but it but it's the terminology. A lot of the mammalian and human uh, genes that fall under this definition, which we'll get in a second, uh, were called Hox. So, uh, but it's um, sort of shorthand because it's not really an abbreviation for homeobox containing gene. Uh, and so the homeobox actually goes back to the Nobel Prize winning uh, efforts of Ed Lewis, uh, who uh, spent 20, 30 years uh, working with funny looking flies um, and doing um, real hardcore old school genetics uh, with um, crossing over and mapping. Um, and, and he had... Um, uh, what he what he had were a whole series of these mutations that were called homeotic mutations. So again, we're we're working our way back to where Hox came from. Uh, and the homeotic uh, means that uh, characteristics. So uh, well, let's take one more step back. So insects, um, like many organisms, but in insects, it's really easy to see are, are segmented animals. Uh, if you look at them, the way that their exoskeleton is organized uh, is actually reflected underneath, too. Uh, but they're in um, sort of like easily seen divisible parts. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and uh, what a homeotic mutation uh, and, and what, uh, ha what happens in a homeotic mutation is that uh, body parts and specific body parts, like say wings, uh, that are found on this segment of a fly um, with a particular mutation, you find that segment is kind of repeated so that there's a transformation of what was, um, what would normally not be wings, uh, but there are organs there that are actually uh, modified. Uh, in other words, they can develop into wings if you have this mutation. Uh, so you end up with two sets of wings instead of one. Uh, uh, and then uh, a very extreme, another example uh, is that um, many of the, not, not the wings, but many of the other appendages uh, like mouth parts, antenna, uh, that are uh, specialized uh, for specific functions on an insect, um, the theory is that they actually are modified legs. Uh, and so, um, in other words, in the absence of the signals that say, hey, you're an antenna or, hey, you're a mouth part, uh, they will, by default, develop into legs. And so one of the other homeotic mutations, uh, which was originally called antennapedia, uh, th this is pretty extreme. All of these mouth parts end up looking more like legs than they're supposed to look like antenna or thing. And so, so the missing, the absence of that signal uh, ultimately ends up going to the default state, which is legs. And so, th again, that's a homeotic transformation so that a particular body part transforms into a body part found somewhere else. Uh, and so um, 
uh, and so that's the homeotic part. And then uh, the, the uh, homeo box, so that's the homeo part. The box turned out uh, that after uh, Dr. Lewis had done all this stuff, he was really doing it pre-molecular genetics. So um, toward the end of his scientific career, other people figured out um, they, they were able to clone these homeotic uh, genes. Uh, and when they did, uh, they found that there was this sequence, DNA sequence, that ultimately uh, was the code for a series of amino acids. And so that, uh, that sequence of DNA was seen, the exact same sequence was seen multiple times in different genes. And because uh, most of the genes that they originally discovered it in were homeotic mutations, it became the homeo box, uh, which is really unfortunate <laughs> because uh, these days when you say homeo box, it's like, oh, something you put something in or bind to. But it's just a homeo box because uh, in the early days of sequencing, it was pretty, it was pretty uh, rigorous and strenuous work, and it took a lot of effort to do uh, what nowadays is uh, people are like, nothing. So... Um, uh, and so they just happened to call the box because they would see that same sequence repeated in different spots in these different proteins. Uh, and it turns out what that does is it codes for a very specific secondary structure of the protein uh, that indicates that that protein can bind DNA. So that's what the homeobox can. So, so then homeobox containing genes became Hox genes. And, uh, and, uh, and the really interesting thing is, um, originally seen in the fly, although the fly has a weird organization relative to most other organisms, um, the, um, uh, these Hox genes, which bind DNA, turn out to be transcription factors. Uh, and, me, and that means they actually control the expression of a large set of other genes. Uh, and so, the presence and or absence of these uh, transcription factors is ultimately what determines what specific segments become. So, uh, for example, there is, there are multiple head segments. There are three thorax and eight or nine abdominal segments. And so, the presence of these different uh, Hox genes, which in the fly there are uh, five or six, um, the expression. Uh, uh, the, the combined expression, uh, so that in this segment you'll only have one, this segment you'll have two, here you'll have three. It's the combination of both positive, that is turning on the genes uh, so that the, you get the protein products, and negative, uh, that you block other genes from being expressed. And it's the, it's the combination of having these um, Hox genes expressed and making these transcription factors that are both positively and negatively regulating uh, each one of these segments in a slightly different way that ultimately determines what that segment will become. Uh, it was originally found on the fly, and then when they started looking in other organisms, uh, they found it in mice, it's in humans, uh, and it turns out all vertebrates have some uh, number of these. Um, now, uh, way back when, uh, uh, so and so these genes, uh, uh, go back to the go back in evolutionary time to where uh, insects and vertebrates had a common ancestor. 
Uh, and that would actually be what's referred to as like the first bilateral. A bilateral uh, organism is one that has a head and a tail and a left and a right side. Uh, and so these genes are tied into that particular development pattern. Uh, and so there are a lot of organisms that have that bilateral pattern. Not all of them are segmented. Uh, so uh, even though this original ancient ancestor had these uh, genes and probably in the organization, which I'm going to get to right now, um, not every descendant of that organism kept that. Uh, but the segmented organisms um, did. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what you see. And the key is that they're organized on the chromosome, which is the fascinating part, which um, Ed Lewis discovered, in that uh, the genes that affect, say, the head, they occur first in these clusters. Uh, and then the genes that control uh, the thorax, so the next set of segments in, that's found after the one for the head. And then the abdominal segments are controlled by, uh, the identity is controlled by genes which are further down. So the organization of the genes on the chromosome itself actually mirrors where they're expressed in the organism and what parts of the organism they actually control the formation of. And that organization has been preserved and is seen in vertebrates too. So that's why it's thought this Hox cluster uh, goes all the way back to our common ancestor and that the descendants of that ancestor have used it uh, through evolution. It's been used for different things. One of the things that I'll just say it and people can look it up <laughs> uh, is that during vertebrate evolution, the entire genome of our ancestral species was duplicated uh, such that uh, and, and at least twice, uh, so that um, in the fly, there's one Hox cluster. So they didn't undergo this duplication. But in vertebrates, there's anywhere from uh, four to, in some fish, six. Uh, and, um, um, and so with duplication comes the opportunity through random mutation and evolution and natural selection for specialization. So some of the Hox clusters in vertebrates are tied to limb formation, right? So in, in addition to being genes that are used to identify head, uh, and, and in general, in vertebrates, you see this, again, expression uh, tied to the organization of the chromosome um, in uh, the uh, production, uh, in the uh, uh, early neural tissue. Um, during development. And you see, again, this very, uh, these genes which are at the front of the cluster are found in the uh, very close to the brain. Uh, and then as you go further and further back down uh, the spinal cord, you see, again, the same organization on the chromosome showing up in the expression um, in the tissues. Uh, and then for the, for the parts of the Hox clusters uh, tied to limbs, um, you see the same thing. So that the genes that are expressed that control, this is uh, your shoulder, and then these are your upper arm bones, lower arm bones, and fingers. They're organized in that same fashion on the chromosome also. Uh, so prior to the comeuppance of bilaterans, you don't see the homeobox genes. So it, they were developed possibly in that... Uh, well, you you don't see that or you don't see that organization. So there are 
there are similar proteins, uh, but they're not organized at all, but they're like individual proteins that have similar functions in plants. Uh, but they're not in a cluster. There's just like one here, one there. So whether, you know, you go back to uh, our prokaryotic common ancestor, if there was something along those lines that functions as a transcription factor, which there may have been, because if you look at our most closely related prokaryotic uh, organisms that are around today, the archaean, so not bacteria, but archaea, um, they actually do have things like transcription factors. Um, and, you know, technically, I think it's sort of a matter of uh, semantics, because there are things that if you are being totally honest about it are essentially transcription factors in bacteria too. Uh, but they don't call them that because um, transcription factors is a very eukaryotic term. Uh, and so they, they call them other things, but essentially they're proteins that bind to DNA that either increase the likelihood of transcription or don't. Uh, and so to me, that falls under the same general class. Because even like, you know, transcription factors in eukaryotes, of which Hox genes are uh, fall in that family, um, they work through a multitude of different methods. Uh, so just saying it, you know, so I don't know why you couldn't lump them. And I've actually seen papers where they have, but in general, they, they want to call them different things. Uh, and part of it's historical. Uh, part of it is, it's like, if you say transcription factor, then a lot of people immediately think of RNA polymerase two, which is a eukaryotic, uh, transcription factor and this whole thing tied around that. So I can understand why they don't necessarily wouldn't use the terminology, but in reality, it's the same kind of function. So, mm -hmm. And now going into more of the uh, modern scientific influence, you were talking a lot about the first understanding of homeobox genes or homeobox containing genes uh, that were with these uh, Drosophila melanogasters or fruit flies that we were using techniques like PCR or polymerase chain reaction to actually exclude part of the gene sequence in uh, the Hox genes and then replace them with other portions, like taking out antenna of fly and then replacing them with compound eyes, if you want to talk a little bit about that as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so that's sort of what they did. Uh, <laughs> Maybe um, they off. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's okay. Uh, so it, it turns out that there, uh, there is this um, homeobox-containing gene uh, called, uh, in, in mammals, it's called PAC6. Uh, in flies, uh, it's actually called ILIS. Uh, but the uh, amino acid sequence is very, very similar. Uh, and um, it's not actually part of one of the, it's not, I don't think it's part of one of these clusters. Uh, but what they did is they um, took the, the mouse, uh, version of this gene, which in mice it's called PAC6, uh, and in uh, humans it has the same uh, general name, although I think the terminology is slightly different, but it's the same protein essentially in humans and mice. Uh, and they um, uh, put it in frame uh, with a um, sequence, a DNA sequence that controlled the expression where the gene was expressed. And um, it was at least a promoter. Uh, in all likelihood, it probably also include our control regions that are called enhancers. Enhancers are 
really important for gene expression in eukaryotes. Uh, and so um, this combination of control elements was put uh, and they, uh, in front of and therefore controlled the mouse PAC6 gene. Uh, and then they, uh, they then um, inserted using uh, different uh, genetic techniques where you basically add DNA to the genome of the fly. So it just, it's stuck somewhere, but because you have this control region, it'll be expressed based on that control region. Uh, and so uh, the control region then uh, led to uh, this mouse gene being expressed in um, the uh, tissues that would normally uh, develop into an antenna. But because the, the ILIS PAC6 gene is a master control switch, which alters the identity of the cells in which it's expressed to become I in the fly, because flies don't make the same eyes mammals do, they have compound eyes, uh, which are basically, uh, instead of um, one retina with many, many photoreceptors, uh, flies have uh, a bunch of retinas with a small number of photoreceptors, and they're organized in this sort of like hexagonal grid. Uh, I have no idea what a fly sees, uh, but it's like multiple uh, receptors each separated from one another. And then the, uh, the uh, neuronal information is then processed by their brain, and they make sense of it somehow. Uh, I mean, I mean, if we saw it, we probably would believe it. that doesn't make any sense. I don't, there's no visual information I get there. Uh, but um, because um, it's a master control switch, the mouse gene uh, turned on eye development um, in the fly. Uh, and um, because all of the uh, fly development genes for the mouse weren't added, the fly development, uh, the eye development uh, genes for the fly were activated by this master control switch. And so you got tiny little compound eyes um, in tissues that would normally become antennapedia by actually activating and uh, creating an enormous amount of this uh, protein, which basically overrode the, the normal instructions for that uh, tissue. So that's why you got these um, amazingly, uh, you know, they were basically like compound eyes. They just weren't in the right place. Now they had their normal eyes too, because you didn't overrun. You just basically hijacked that tissue to become eye tissue, uh, and and it was basically and it 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 just showed that again uh, that these genes are really old. They they've been around a really long time uh, because um, uh, both in arthropods, uh, of which insects are uh, a division of. Uh, and um, in invertebrates, the same gene has ended up being uh, um, through, uh, you know, uh, evolutionary uh, processes, the control gene for I. Uh, so um, now I don't, like, for example, other organisms that have eyes like um, octopi uh, and um, other invertebrates like scallops, where they have individual eyes on the end of their uh, stalks. I'm not sure that same gene would work for them. It might. I don't, I don't know if anyone's ever done that or looked at it. Uh, but um, for very, you know, distantly related organisms like insects and vertebrates, 
the same uh, essentially set of amino acids was used in the, in, uh, by evolutionary forces to end up creating eyes. So that's really utterly fascinating. <laughs> uh, and, but that's how they, that's what they did is they, and they proved it by saying, okay, look, these amino acid sequences are the same. Uh, Eyeless is, in, is involved in creating eyes in the, in the insect. Uh, Pax 6 uh, if you have a loss of function of that, uh, mice end up with extremely reduced um, uh, eyes. They still make like the external part, but the, uh, the retina is all messed up. Uh, and in humans, it leads to very, uh, the loss of that gene leads to uh, eyes that didn't develop properly at all. So it's not exactly fulfilling all the same purposes, but in all cases, it's um, tied to and part of eye development. Uh, and the absence of it ends up leading to the loss of uh, normal visual uh, organs. I wish I had commentary throughout, but you explained that very well. And that was a <laughs> roller coaster of information. So thank you very much on that. And uh, the one thing I'd like to go into just for a minute uh, to close here is, what do you think this knowledge of Hox genes will look like in the future? What do you think it'll help us get to next, if you have any ideas? Oh, that's actually that's actually a great question. I think I think one thing is that um, all right. So there's a number of different questions that are tied to it. So um, it really then uh, because for example, there were multiple theories about like segmentation. Uh, because if you look at it, um, there are in the animal kingdom um, there are uh, a smaller number of segmented animals, most animals aren't segmented, yet based on this, that suggests then that these Hox genes are really, really old and go back to the point where um, non-segmented and segmented animals have a common ancestor. So understanding like, you know, the interactions of these uh, proteins during development, that's gonna inform evolutionary theory. Now, in terms of health, <laughs> That's, that's really, um, I'm not sure where that's going to go. I mean, having, a, uh, you know, knowing how, uh, well, uh, knowing how well preserved some of the tasks are uh, in terms of, say, eyeless and PAC-6 are both tied to eyes, that does then open up the opportunity that if you find one of these genes that seems to control uh, a process in flies where you can create funny looking flies that, and you're not necessarily, uh, people aren't going to be the upset that you messed up an invertebrate. Um, this can then inform our researchers. It's like, hey, here's this gene. Now let me go to the genomic information, the database. Is there an equivalent gene in mammals? Maybe that's a reason why I have this syndrome or why I see this developmental defect. Um, in humans, this gene may be the reason why this happens. So it's possible it could inform um, uh, directions for research and possibly uh, figuring out, okay, now we have, now we know why this particular um, outcome uh, is uh, happening because it's tied to this, this gene that we see this effect in flies. Uh, therefore, um, it's tied into this process. Uh, and, and there is actually, in genetics, we're going to talk about it, uh, <laughs> there is a, um, 
uh, another homeotic gene uh, that causes the transformation uh, of the lower jaw into the upper jaw. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out um, that this same homeobox containing gene uh, controls uh, olfactory and hearing organs in the fly. So, and, and this is something that affects both the ear, development of the ear and the jaw in mammals. Uh, and so, again, you might be able to make that, uh, that sort of connection. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think the biggest thing is that knowing that there are these sort of like master control genes um, is a way to like try to figure out, okay, what, you know, uh, and, and then but, uh, having targets to look at that maybe explain um, these uh, human out outcomes. Um, and at least it, it gives you an idea of like of the 20,000 genes uh, humans have, what's the smaller number of them I should be looking at? that may be responsible for this, uh, this health outcome. And do you think it'd ever be possible to use our knowledge of isolating these Hox genes from one organism and implanting them in another to prevent deformities at birth through looking at like, zygotic DNA sequences? Do you think that'd ever be possible? Uh, it's possible. I mean, um, in most cases, what you would I think, you know, one of the things where CRISPR is supposed to be this, uh, was supposed to be this, because uh, ideally what, what, what um, geneticists would like to be able to do uh, is figure out a way that if they know what the genetic uh, change is that causes some sort of bad outcome, that they could go in there somehow, repair it so that that uh, that individual then um, wouldn't, uh, would all of his cells or its cells would um, um, have the, you know, normal copy uh, and therefore not suffer the outcome. That is such, that is fraught with so many different uh, levels of complication, uh, you know, starting right at the top with ethical issues. Uh, the biggest thing is there hasn't been a technique yet that doesn't have unintended consequences. Uh, and part of that is, even though we know a lot, there is so much more we don't know. And there is so much more, um, you know, that you don't understand the interactions on all tissues at, throughout the development that is necessary to end up with, say, a normal healthy uh, baby or embryo uh, that it's it's really a daunting task to say, okay, I'm going to make this alteration and everything's going to be okay. Anyway, that's uh, it's possible, uh, but I see that you know uh, as tied into the bigger uh, issue of is there a safe way? Um, and so in embryos, probably not, and there are a lot of ethical issues with that. Uh, but there could be things where, as an adult who can give consent you may be able then to modify things uh, using these sort of techniques uh, and therefore, um, you know, either minimize or uh, prevent uh, the, the bad outcomes as an adult or at least somebody that can consent, you know, maybe a teenager or what have you. Uh, but you probably wouldn't, you know, in utero and in embryo, that's right there is a very gray area. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a lot... Um, uh, and, and, you know, and then you're also not permanently altering your genome 
uh, you can just fix the cells that are broken, so to speak, or the tissue that is broken. Uh, and you know, maybe it's something multiple times, uh, and that ends up having the outcome that ends up having the better health outcome. That has a lot less ethical considerations uh, in terms of uh, you know long-term impact on the species, um, you know, consent, all those things that are really important and to think about. Uh, so yeah. That was another long winded answer, sorry. <laughs> I do appreciate you uh, closing it off with the whole Socrates Plato idea of the one thing I know is that I know nothing. So I appreciate that. Uh, no, no, there's just so much. Uh, that's so true that the more you learn, the less, the, the less you realize there's less I know. So yeah. knowledge is intimidating, but we got to keep working towards it. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's fun. It's fun. I enjoy it. <laughs> With that, thank you so much, Dr. Zimmerman, for taking some time out of your day to uh, explain to us a very, very fascinating portion of genetics. All right, you're welcome. Okay, Dean, I will, uh, I will see you around LPS. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. This is you're us welcome. starting off with pen pals, bringing Philadelphia stories to you from a distance. Thank you for joining us today.